Good morning, Cross Point. You can be seated. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Children, you can be released for Children's Church. And I'm actually starting today with a disclaimer. So here's the thing. I need some extra grace this morning, okay? Here's why. I don't know if... uh, No, okay, good. Not yet. (laughs) So normally, my sermon prep day is Thursday. That's when I sit down to actually write the sermon. But Thursday morning, I'm doing my devotions. I'm having my quiet time with God. And my son calls. And he's like, Amelie is in labor. I'm like, yes! right? Like we've been waiting for this. So then the whole day I'm supposed to be there at my computer actually writing the sermon, but I keep checking my phone, like what's going on? When is she going to give birth? And so I couldn't concentrate. So the sermon didn't get very far. The problem was the labor continued. So it started like at 3 a.m. or so on Thursday morning, Thursday came and went, and then Friday was here. And that's when I was going to work on the sermon after our grandson was born, but he wasn't born yet. So now I'm still waiting. And I'm like, what's happening? What's the news? Can't concentrate. Then Saturday comes. Middle of the night, they call. He's here, right? 45 hours. She was in labor. Yeah, right? Like with contractions every five, seven minutes apart during that time, where like she worked a full week with overtime in those days. But we have a beautiful grandson now who we got to hold, Oliver Wayne. You'll see his picture up there. So happy for them. So needless to say, I need some grace (laughs) because I didn't have any of those contractions. (laughs) I realized like I had nothing to do with any of this. I sat at home waiting but I didn't do a very good job of anything else during that time. Um, so, so excited uh, for them. This is a grandchild number three, and so thankful for God's provision in that. So let me um, invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter two. I'm having to transition now because I have like grandbabies on my brain. <clears throat> Colossians chapter two verse 16, is where we're going to be looking at today as we continue in our series through Colossians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church to kind of hold Christ as preeminent, hold Christ as center above everything else. And we're going to see how he does that today in this reality as he talks about shadows in substance. So you're going to have to endure one more grandchild story, but this one connects, okay? So last night, unexpectedly, we got to watch our oldest grandchild who just turned two. Her new favorite thing has been to like chase, play tag, hide and seek. It's this weird combination. You don't know who's chasing who. At times I'm chasing her, then she turns around and chases me. But I chased her into my office. And I have these sliding doors with a frosted glass. And she knows then that I can like slide the other one open and get her from the other side. So she's holding them. She's there holding the door so I can't get it. And what you see when that happens is the shadow of these handprints up against the glass. You you can see the shadow of her face, her outline, her form, hiding there behind the door, waiting in anticipation. But what if we stop the story right there? What if we said that's enough? 
Look how beautiful and intricate those hands are. The, the, the shadow of those hands. Like what if we said, that's enough. I can see the, the form. That's, that's all I need. What if the, the chase stopped there? And, and the door was never opened. What would be missed? Because when the door opened, there's the, the giggles and the laughter in the embrace that comes afterwards. That's my prayer this morning. I think some of us stand before God and we're satisfied with the shadow. And he's inviting us in to, to slide the door to our heart open and embrace the substance of who he is. That's the beauty of what we will see in today's passage. And so if you will, stand with me. I'm going to pray for us as we read God's word then together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are not just a mere shadow behind a a veiled door. Lord, but that you have made yourself known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we can know the reality of your embrace, the reality of your presence. And I pray, Lord, lift our hearts beyond the satisfaction of living in the shadows, Lord. To embrace fully the substance of Christ in all your glory and wonder. And Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So continue to stand with me if you can, as I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 16, and I'm going to read through verse 4 of chapter 3. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or or drink or in the matter of a festival or a, a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to the visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, a false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also 
will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. So let's begin. The the very first word in verse 16. Therefore, Paul is, is starting here, but remember these letters were read in full before the congregation. They didn't have these stop and starts like we do. So I want to connect. What did we talk about last week? Because what we talked about last week is where we pick up today. He's building on that foundation that he's already laid. And that is this call to be captivated by Christ. To be captivated by him. We see this in verse 8. Be careful. Be careful that no one else takes you captive. Rather, be captivated by Christ. And the reason why. Because the person who stands behind those sliding doors is Christ. And the fullness, the fullness of God dwells in him. That's who he is. That who he is is he fills you. When you're empty and weak, he is the head over every ruler and authority. He holds in his hand a bloodstained document, this certificate of debt that we owe to God, the payment requiring death for our sins. He holds it in his hands, blood-soaked, written over it, paid in full by the blood of Christ. That's who he is And when fear grips us, we remember that it was Jesus who disarmed and disgraced publicly every spiritual ruler and authority that he is victorious. There is now no condemnation for the person who is in Christ Jesus. That who he is determines who we are. Therefore, this is where it builds. And so we can't just continue on in this passage unless we ask the question and, and we let it weigh on our hearts. Is he enough? Is he worthy? The, the person who stands on the other side of that door seeing his handprints against the glass, are we satisfied with a blurred image Or do we slide that door back to behold him in all his glory and to surrender to him? This is what Paul is getting at when he says, therefore, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink. In the matter of festival or a new moon or Sabbath, it says these are a shadow of what was to come. See, there are shadows of righteousness, and there is the substance of righteousness. And and what we're being called to guard our heart in is from resting in these shadows of righteousness. Shadows of, you know, you're right before God. You're more holy before God, depending on the food you consume. God will approve of you if, if you don't eat pork. If you don't have lard, if you don't eat meat at all, maybe you have a vegan or a vegetarian diet. 
If you eat these foods, God will approve of you. And if you don't eat these foods, then God will look more favorably on you. These are shadows. Don't let people turn around and judge you based on this. Don't, don't let the judgment of your righteousness be based on the things that you drink. Oh, well, I don't drink caffeine. I've never had a soda. I don't drink alcohol. Like, we can say all these things. I, I don't drink non-herbal teas. That Therefore, God approves of me. Do those things make us righteous or unrighteous? Is God more favorable towards you based on the things you consume or don't consume? These are shadows. These are not the substance of Christ as we're going to see. And then he goes on in verse 18 to talk about ascetic practices. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices. The worship of angels claiming access to the the visionary world. Asceticism is this denying yourself physical pleasures and conveniences even when you don't need to so that you can grow closer to God. Like, oh, I need these things to grow closer to God. And so we see this complete sexual abstinence, no marriage, no sex. I'm going to deny myself or this vow of poverty as if Poverty is righteous and wealth is wicked. I'm going to deny myself these things because it makes me closer to God. It makes me more holy, more righteous. I'm going to have this self-imposed poverty. I'm going to seclude myself in a monastery, in the wilderness, away from people. Because sanctification is a whole lot easier when you're not around others. And we're going to call that righteous. We're going to call that more spiritual. We're going to call that holy. There's whole denominations that define holiness based on these shadows of exterior. But we don't have a TV in our home. I've, I've never been to the movies. No short sleeves in church. I heard a pastor once say that if you wear short sleeves in church, God won't hear your prayers. I heard it. <laughs> That women can't wear pants. My grandmother told me this one. No sandals. My grandmother, who just passed away, she was 99. She was a feisty. Like, she's been around, right? And I was talking to her on the phone, and sometimes she remembered things, sometimes she didn't. She's like, yeah, I wore sandals to church, and this lady came up to me. She was like, I can't believe you would wear sandals to church. Like, how immodest. And my grandma was like, and you know what I told her? And I'm laughing at this point. I was like, I have no idea what you're going to say at this point. She was like, well, I told her that if my Savior wore sandals, they're good enough for me if they're good enough for him. I was like, yep, sounds reasonable. (laughs) She's like, and you know what? She wore sandals to church a few weeks later. (laughs) But we make these exteriors what make us right before God. We say, oh, if if I wear a shirt and tie to church, and that's fine, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't make God hear your prayers anymore. I just happen to think ties are a noose and from the devil. I don't like them. (laughs) Like, but wearing a t-shirt or wearing a tie doesn't change. It's saying, don't let people judge you based on asceticism. These are shadows. The worship of angels. 
spiritualism, praying to angels, praying to saints, putting others before Christ. But let's be honest, we can do this. Crystals are replaced by candles. Amulets replaced by a crucifix to bring good luck. We just change the symbols and yet use them the same way. Visions, this some kind of visionary experience. And it can be like, oh, something's lacking. I can't get close to God. They seem so close to God. Are, are they eating the right food? Are they wearing the right clothes? What are they doing? And it's a worship of shadows. And look at what it says in verse 18. At the end, such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. It says in verse 23 that they have a a reputation of wisdom. This self-made religion, this false humility, this severe treatment. And yet it has no value, it says in verse 23, in curbing self-indulgence. Inflate it like a balloon. I almost brought one to actually blow it up and pop it. (laughs) Like if you can imagine this balloon blown up, drawn tight. And we view it and we're like, look how beautiful it is. It's, oh, it's filled with the Spirit of God and righteousness. And Paul's like, no, it's filled with nothing but hot air. It's meaningless. It looks beautiful. It looks righteous. But it is completely meaningless. Filled with hot air, false notions of an unspiritual mind. It does nothing to draw us closer to God. It does nothing to make us more holy. And it looks like wisdom. But verse 23 stands out that they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Consider this. It adds nothing to our righteousness. And it takes nothing away from our sinfulness. I mean, all we have to do is is look at the headlines of the Catholic Church, celibacy in the priesthood, and yet, do we hear of sexual purity, of priest? It hasn't curbed sexual desires. It hasn't curbed self-indulgence. And let's not just pick on them, like pick any evangelical church. There's plenty of pastors who you see standing up here saying one thing with their mouth and then living another way in their life. Eating certain foods, drinking certain drinks, like wearing certain clothes, doing whatever that practice is does not transform the heart. It adds nothing and it takes nothing away. It does not kill the desires within They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They are a shadow. So let me ask this. That's the shadow, but what's the substance? 
See, because that's the point Paul's making. Like, that's the thesis, if you will, in verse 17. These are a shadow of what was to come. There is something that's intended. There's something that stands on the other side of those doors. And the substance is Christ. So if we're not to look to these things for our righteousness, if we're not to look to these things for our holiness or or, or to kill our own desires so that we can pursue God, then what do we look to? What do we trust in? There's four statements that Paul's going to make here that I've put with a red pen. I made squares around. If you're taking notes in your Bible or your scripture journal, I would encourage you to do the same because these four statements, I'm going to want you to kind of say together with me. I want these statements to stay true in your mind as a reminder to yourself as we trust in the substance of Christ righteousness. The first one is found in the very beginning of verse 20. You died with Christ. Like, can you say this with me that, that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that I have died with Christ. And, and here's the thing. I'm giving a caveat because normally I hate when pastors like say, turn to your brother and say this. It's always bothered me. I don't know why. But I do think last week I completely failed in the responsive reading. So this one, you don't need anything up on the screen. Okay. And I do think there's value in saying this together, that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus to say with me that I have died in Christ. Can you say it with me? I have died with Christ. Like this is a true statement. If you've trusted in Jesus, what does it mean? Why is that the substance that I have died with Christ and I've died to the elements of this world? So why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to those regulations? Like don't trust in shadows, trust in Christ because you have died with him. It's the verse from Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. We identify with Christ's death on the cross in faith when we proclaim our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are identifying with his death and resurrection when we walk in obedience through baptism that we celebrate here. These are the words we use, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life as we're going to see. There is an identification with the death of Christ. You have died with Christ that we live lives in sacrificial surrender to Jesus. We don't surrender to human commands and traditions and doctrines. We surrender to Christ because those other things were powerless to add to our righteousness. They only exposed our unrighteousness. They were powerless to destroy our flesh and our desires apart from God. They only exposed it. It added nothing. It took nothing away. But we have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ and we are free from the penalty of sin. That certificate of debt with its obligations that opposed us, 
that now reads paid in full by the blood of Christ. In His death, we are freed from sin's penalty in our life. We're free. And, and, and there's fear. There, there's those who say, well, well these man-made things, there's wisdom here. There's wisdom in the rules because if not, people are just going to keep sinning. Grace is too dangerous. We need to help God out and add these rules so that people don't take grace too far. But Paul addresses this. I would encourage you on the side of verses 220 through 3-4, right in the margin, Romans 6. These two passages pair, parallel one another beautifully. See, Romans 6 verse 1 starts off like, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Do we just keep sinning? If we're saved by grace, then what does it matter if we sin? It's just more grace, and it's like absolutely not. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Look, if you are just using Jesus to get to heaven, to live however you want in rebellion to Jesus, and you don't care, I would question whether or not you are actually trusting in Jesus at all. Because you have not died with him. You have not been crucified in Christ. You are using him for your own self-indulgence to live however you want. That's how the scripture talks about it. The reality is, as placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being baptized, we're saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. I, my the penalty of my sin was put to death. And not only that, I have been raised with Christ. Look at verse 3 1. So, if you have been raised with Christ, that's the second statement. That's the one I would encourage you to put. Like, can you say that with me? I have been raised with Christ. Like, I have been raised with Christ. These are the true statements. This is the substance of our righteousness. I have died with Christ. I now live in Christ. I have been raised with him. Because Galatians 2.20 says, not only have I been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, I have died I have been crucified with him. And I live, but I don't live in my own power. I don't live for my own self-indulgence. I live for the glory of his name. And I live in his power and for his glory. And it's not my life, but it's his. And I live it surrendered and submitted to him. And this is what Romans, what Paul goes on to say in Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order... And listen to this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, 
we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is why when we do baptism, it's coming directly from Romans 6. It is a picture, an exterior picture of an inward reality that demonstrates our death with Christ in being raised to walk in the newness of life that he has purchased through his death and then his resurrection. You have been raised with Christ. Romans 6 goes on to say, for we know, we know, not we hear, not we think, we know that our old self, those desires, that self-indulgence, that sinful aspect was crucified with him so that that body that's ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved, entrapped, captured by sin since a person who has died is free from sin. Christ loosened the chains of our sinful nature. That in his resurrection, we are free from the power of sin in our life. Now, here's the thing. If you're like me, you're thinking, but I still sin. (laughs) Right? We're freed from the power of sin. We're not yet freed from the full presence of sin, which we're going to get to. But its power has been put to death. In Christ's death, the penalty is gone. In his resurrection, it is rendered powerless. So pray in a t-shirt, a tank top, at the beach. Your righteousness is in Christ. It's because of him. He is the substance. He paid the price. Here's the third statement we find at the end of verse 3. So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and here it is, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So here's the third statement, if you can say with me. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am hidden with Christ in God. See, when you're tempted to find your righteousness and you've done your devotions, you've gone to church, you've done all the right things, God, to remind ourselves, I have died with Christ. I am raised with Christ. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am safe and secure. I am protected. Nobody can come in and enslave me to the shadows anymore. No one can come in and tell me, you're not doing enough. You need to now wear a shirt and tie. You need to wear these special clothes, and then God will be more happy with you. Isn't that amazing? Unnecessary. I have Christ. Keep your shadows. And then here's the final statement. At the end of verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, who is truth, and when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 
Here's that final statement. I will appear with Christ in glory. Can you say that? I will appear with Christ in glory. That this is what's true. There's still something coming. Something that's not yet true, but is fully promised and fully purchased in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This future grace that is ours, that when he appears, we will be free from the presence of all sin. No more. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. And so when we breathe our last breath and we are in the presence of God, sin will be no more. Or if we are still alive and Christ returns and we meet him in glory, sin will be no more. That is the truth that awaits us. This is what is true for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. You have died with him. The penalty is gone. You were raised with him. The power of sin is broken. You will be with him in glory and the presence of sin will be no more. He is the substance of our righteousness. Behold and embrace him. That's the call. That's the the invitation. Jen Wilkin writes, "When, When we'll fight, we will fight to grow in holiness our entire earthly lives. But when we have run the race and and fought the good fight, we will enter the presence of the Lord forever. We will be glorified. In His presence, our soul rest will at last be complete as sin and its devastation will cease to assail us. There can be no evil in His presence. This is our promise. It's not our present reality. But it is already purchased, it is already promised, and it awaits everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus. So how do we apply these verses today? How do we live this out now? This truth, this this battle between a shadow of righteousness and the substance of righteousness. How do we appropriately live this out? And I think... The first way is I really want to root in our heart, I think I just named it substantial righteousness. It's this, the sufficiency of Christ. This is what it comes down to. This is the question that will plague you between will I trust in Christ in the substance of who he is or will I trust in the shadows of things I eat, consume, wear, do to bring me approval or to die to myself. And what I want to commend to us this morning, when we said I died with Christ, is that the death of Jesus is sufficient. It's sufficient. The death of Jesus is sufficient to pay the totality of your debt. Jesus didn't pay part of it, He didn't pay most of it, and now you need to work off the rest of it. He paid it in full. The death of Jesus is sufficient. So when we say, I died with Christ, I'm saying that his death paid it all. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing left to pay off. 
There's nothing left I need to earn to get God's favor and approval. His death is sufficient. It paid it all. That his life is sufficient. When we say that we have been raised with Christ, his life is sufficient. The miraculous, physical resurrection of Jesus is completely sufficient to give us new life, to free us from the power of sin, to die to ourselves and live for the glory of Christ is fully sufficient in his death and resurrection. There's nothing else I need to trust in. There's nothing else I need to do to add to it or make it better or to be more holy or more righteous or less sinful other than resting in Jesus Christ. To reminding myself, I have died with him, I live in him, I am hidden in him, and I will be glorified in him. This is what I need to remind myself of. His death is sufficient, his life is sufficient, and he is sufficient in glory. That you will not be perfect today. You will not be perfect tomorrow. You will not be perfect next week. Perfection is not possible in this life. That is not the part of the story we're in. We're in the part of the story where we have died to ourselves. We have died to our sinful nature. Sin is still present and I still give in to it by my own self-indulgent and choices. But he is sufficient in glory. That the promise of my perfection is not in how good I am, but in how good God is. Because He is sufficient in glory, and when He returns, sin then will be no more. But that's not my reality today, and it will not be by my own strength and power. But it is purchased and promised in Christ. That's my hope. That's the embrace of a loving God when we see beyond the shadow to fall into his embrace. And I think there's one other thing that's helpful for us to talk about. In application, some of us need to hear and repeat and rehearse these truths. That I have died with him, I have been raised with him, I am hidden with him, and I will be with him in glory then this needs to be applied in our world with a humble wisdom. And here's what I mean by that. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul again writes, everything is permissible, everything's free, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. See, we don't need to add to our righteousness, we don't need it to take away So what do we do? Is is fasting wrong? What about people who have dietary needs or just convictions and choose to not eat pork or to not eat meat? Are, Are they wrong? Is that sinful? How do we think about the limitations we put on ourselves appropriately? Like there's some tension here as we begin to think through it. What about when it comes to what we drink? Do we drink caffeine? Do we drink alcohol? What do we do? Do we celebrate Halloween? Do we celebrate Christmas, Easter, 
Do you know what I mean? Like, like this is where, let's get into some of the, the aspects here. The reality of what this passage is saying is that certain diets do not add to or take away from your righteousness. If someone has a personal conviction to not eat meat, that's fine. There's a humble wisdom. Maybe there's dietary. Maybe your stomach doesn't respond well to gluten. And so you personally choose to not eat. That's fine. You're no more holy before God. You're no more righteous. And someone who does eat those things is no more holy or righteous before God. That's your personal conviction. That's okay. The same is true when it comes to what is to drink. Is alcohol a sin? No. Drunkenness is a sin. We're called to be self-controlled. In, in alcohol that leads to drunkenness, that's wrong. So is it a sin to drink alcohol? No. Are you any more holy because you drink alcohol? No. Are you any more holy or righteous because you don't drink alcohol? No. But someone may choose to not drink alcohol for any number of reasons. Maybe there's a history of alcoholism in themselves or in their family. There's been hurt and brokenness. Maybe in some ministry context, people have chosen to not drink alcohol because it would be poor for their testimony. That's a personal decision. They're not basing their righteousness in it. If you're coming to the point and you're like, well, I don't dance, smoke, chew, whatever the thing is, drink or date girls who do type thing. If you're finding your righteousness in it, that's wrong. Whether you do it or don't do it. You need to have a humble wisdom in knowing that your righteousness is not based on it, but there are things that may be permissible, but not wise. And you need to determine this for yourself and live that out with a clear conscience before God. That's how we're called to navigate this. I would say the same thing. I've had the question, like, is it wrong to celebrate Halloween? That's coming up. Like, that's something you need to think through. Like, what does it mean to glorify Christ? Are certain festivals wrong? Can I participate in it? Like, can, can we do a Christmas tree and gifts? Isn't that pagan? Like, am, am I leading my children away from God? And, and here's how I think about it. Now, this is not in the text. But I have gotten the question. I like candy. So that's one disclaimer, okay? I grew up with Halloween, and I dressed up as fun characters. I like Spider-Man personally, <clears throat> and I like candy, particularly Skittles. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't like the darker side of Halloween. There's another side to Halloween outside of children where it's horror and it's gore. Personally, this is Steve, not pastor. I don't find anything honoring in that. It's hard for me to say when it's like set your things on things above for me to comprehend the, the murder and the gore and the other things that can go along with Halloween. I think we're called to remove ourselves from and I think that's where families need to talk through it because that, that's the decision families have to make. How are we going to celebrate these holidays? And what I want is to say that there's grace in that, that families within the church may come onto different convictions. Your righteousness is not based on your decision, that they're somehow terrible and in, in, in you're the next thing to godliness because of your decision. I want us to be able to talk about these things with a humble wisdom. 
That's just the same, same thing goes with Christmas. Like these are all things I remember Kirsten and I having to work through with kids. Like, okay, how are we going to do this? How do we make Jesus central? But we also want to exchange gifts and there's time with families. And so I would encourage you in two ways. As you think about this, have these conversations as families. Don't base your righteousness on it. All things are permissible and not all things are beneficial or wise. If it contradicts scripture, then it is sinful, <laughs> right? Like you can't be like, oh, I'm permitted to do witchcraft. No, that's kind of clear in scripture. That's not okay. Okay, just some common sense is helpful. But to pray through it. Sometimes we, we are not intentional enough with keeping Christ central. And we can just go along with the culture and in helping to shepherd and disciple our children's heart is an afterthought. And I want to say, let's be more intentional. If that's your tendency, let's be more intentional. Say, how do we make sure that Christ is being celebrated and remembered in the midst of everything we do as a family? That that's our tradition and our legacy. For others, I would say we almost make everything I hate to say it too spiritual, like family and fun are somehow like ungodly. And if it's fun, then God must not want it. I think there's a part of just laughter and fun and being with family is part of the goal as well. And that there's freedom in there to enjoy and participate and celebrate as well. That's how we, we live out the reality and the tension of these is reminding ourselves that our hope is in God. Our righteousness is in Jesus. And I want to have wisdom and in, in freedom and be humble in the personal convictions we're going to have as a family as we live out the truths of who Christ is and that he is held central in our families and in our church. Let's pray together.